For though we live in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not the weapons of the world. Instead, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We tear down arguments and every presumption set up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this world's darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Right, welcome to Cantus Firmus. There are lots of things going on in the news, and I wanted to get some different perspectives than the two that we're constantly hearing. So I invited my friends John D'Angelo from the Anti-War War Vet, and also Arise Spivey, who's supposed to be here but isn't here yet. I'm going to be keeping my eye out for him to see if he jumps in. Uh, he's the he's the uh, artist from Failed Kingdoms who uh, did the music that you heard at the top there. And um, so yeah, so I'm, I'm hoping that though. Uh, John, at least, hopefully Ari, can provide some perspectives from a Christian pro-liberty point of view. So how are you doing today, John? Great, Cody. Thanks for having me. Hey, always love talking to you, friend. Now, are you wearing an anti-war war vet hat right now? Of course. I never leave home without it. Nice. So you, you were kind enough to send me one as well. Yeah. Yeah, you're looking great. Thank you. Actually, I was going to ask you who was on your shirt because I recognize the face, but I'm struggling to place it. I'm Bavrik. Okay. Yeah, uh, as I was telling you, you know, living on a boarding school, I think most people are pretty sympathetic to at least labor-centric uh, economics. So I wear this because it's extremely subversive. No one knows who he is or what he contributed. Um, makes me feel pretty funny wearing it around. Sure. <laughs> All right. Well, so what I kind of wanted to talk about today is um, I guess, first of all, trying to string together and make sense of all these different um, you know, incidences of violence that we're seeing uh, and riots and protests, and then kind of maybe move on from that to talk about um, kind of how race has taken center, central stage um, in, in a lot of these conversations and whether or not the approaches that we've been, um, these kind of more contemporary approaches to race and you know, race theory are very helpful for trying to sort some of these things out. So I guess we, maybe we should start with uh, Kenosha, uh, Wisconsin. Um, and so it's tough to know where to start actually, but we'll start with Kenosha, Wisconsin. So we've got this story about Jacob Blake. He's a man who's shot by police in Kenosha. And as usual, I, the initial reports of the story ended up being misleading. So I think what we'd heard first, what I heard first anyway, was that Blake was basically this good Samaritan who was in his car with his kids and he stopped to break up a fight between two women on the street. And then police showed up, and as he was trying to get in his car to leave, he was shot seven times in the back. That was like basically the account that I heard. Is that more or less what you heard at first? Yeah, that's definitely the sense I got from early reporting. And if not um, uh, an innocent bystander, um, I think one of the first articles I read had mentioned that uh, he was at a, a, maybe an estranged spouse or uh, ex-girlfriend's house at the time, but that there was a fight that he was breaking up. Um, and I think it had quoted the neighbor as saying that he was um, just walking away uh, after like a scuffle with police. So it, it early on had sort of acknowledged that there was maybe a little bit more um, to the story than 
than what they were trying to assert. But yeah, like it, mm. it certainly didn't inject any of that um, complexity early on. And still, I would argue, haven't. But yeah, I think that's kind of the problem. The information at first is always, you know, kind of scattershot. And but but um, as we'll kind of get into it, people react very quickly before all the facts are in. But so yeah, so as as I've been kind of trying to research it and piece it together since then the story seems to be more complicated. So there were women fighting on the street. That, that part's true. Um, and one witness reported that Blake actually said nothing to the women, but others claimed that he did try to intervene between two of them. Um, there actually, I think there was a larger group. There were like six or seven women who were arguing on the street. Um, but I think the, uh, the assumption is that the police kind of showed up randomly or whatever, or showed up because of this fight somehow, which isn't actually the case. They actually arrived because of a call from Blake's girlfriend that he had stolen her car keys. Mm -hmm. uh, and so he actually wasn't even supposed to be there. He wasn't permitted to be there because he had sexually assaulted her in July and had a warrant out for his arrest that hadn't been served yet. Mm -hmm. So well, that's that, why he's, what's that? Yeah, uh, just, uh, so May was the initial charge. And then this day uh, in August, they, it's unclear whether or not they knew who he was, but they knew. Or, or what the extent of the charges were, but they knew before arriving to the scene that the person that that the uh, caller was complaining about did in fact have an open warrant related to her, which is all I think you know fairly important to understand uh, for these these cops arriving on on the scene here. Yeah. So then I guess um, they're trying to subdue him, and they tasered him twice, uh, which I kind of thought was interesting because anytime that. I've talked about Jacob Blake with anyone. They'll always say, well, why didn't they try to tase him first? Which he, they did, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, that's not clear either, though, because some of the reporting I've... So they definitely deployed a taser twice. Yeah. Whether or not he was tased twice um, is still unclear. And I think that that's an, another important thing. If they, they, they didn't use the taser effectively uh, mm -hmm. or actually hit him, I, that matters. I mean... I don't know how someone could have been tased twice and still be getting up and walking away from the scene um, more or less unaffected. I've seen people tased several times and it's not, uh, you know, it's not something you just brush off generally, especially yeah. if you're sober. Sure. Okay. So that, so, so there's some questions. They, they deployed a taser, but whether or not it hit him is, is an open question, I guess. Um, as is, I think how many shots he was, so they fired seven shots, right? So that's, but it's not clear if all those shots hit him or not but there were seven shots that were fired. Eight and seven hit him, I think. Oh, eight and seven hit him. Okay, I kept hearing seven. So, okay. Oh, so firing seven times. Oh, see, I don't know. I, I've heard both, but okay. maybe we're being, I'm, I'm being a little bit too. Uh, <laughs> no, well, I, I, think, I think what we're kind of getting at is it's, it seems like there are a lot of reports that are hard to reconcile early on. So, okay, so he, he they, they at least deployed a taser. There are different reports about whether he was being aggressive or not. The police union says he was and that he was armed with a knife and that he put an officer in a headlock. Now, there is a witness there who heard police say, drop the knife, but they said that they didn't see a knife. Um, so, and they also said that they didn't think that Blake was being violent. So then, okay, so Blake then, he tries to get in his car, and then that's when the police officer shot at him seven or maybe eight times. Seven is the number that I've, I've read, but... Now, I've heard a lot of people say that, um, you know, shooting a man trying to leave is unjustified, which I agree with. I mean, there's no sense in using uh, lethal force against someone who's just trying to leave the scene. Um, 
but I think it's at least plausible that police assumed he was not fleeing, but maybe going for a weapon. Um, although if he had a knife already, I don't know. So there's a knife that was found on the driver's side front floorboard of his car. That, that, is, that is true. Um, so, so as I read about this, it seems to me that, I mean, I needed a lot more information before I could reach a conclusion about who was in the wrong and what police should have done differently. Uh, but rioters in Kenosha obviously felt differently and they took to setting local businesses on fire and looting almost immediately. Um, so it, it seems it's apparent from the get-go. Um, so I, I guess I'd say, is it apparent from the get-go that this was police brutality and particularly racially motivated police brutality? What do you think? I think it's unquestionably police brutality. Um, I Even if he had, even if you grant that he's, been violent on scene, he put a cop in a headlock, and he was walking around the uh, car to get into the driver's seat to grab a knife. Had the police been able to subdue him, uh, I mean, there's several people on scene, uh, several cops on scene, and when he's walking, there are no hands on him um, between the time that he leaves the, the scuffle or whatever uh, at the passenger side door to when he gets over to the driver's side door. They should have engaged him physically uh, before he got to the, you know, opening the door and getting inside. But even then, um, you know, had you not been immediately behind him and not touching him as a, as the police officer, uh, him grabbing a knife is not um, is not a threat to you until, in fact, he's like wielding it, right? And it shouldn't be um, unclear if he has a knife or not um, when they're firing into his back. Uh, so he. The, the cop that actually shot him, Shineski, I think his name is, uh, Shesky, he doesn't touch him until he's apparently grabbing a knife per his uh, side of the story. And then he touches him only to grab his shirt and shoot him seven times. So I think it's a, it's a flagrant um, failure on the cop's side to not have implied, uh, in, employed um, lesser lethal means to controlling the situation before they had to shoot him seven times. Um, but as far as uh, Blake goes, you know, it's, it's, it's like so many of these cases where um, the victim, uh, white or black, is, is very often like, it, it's a complicated situation, right? It's um, it, George Floyd or Michael Brown or whomever. Um, there's n it's not simply a matter of uh, police officers walking up to a random stranger um, who they had no business being around and then like, throwing them on their knees and executing them in the middle of the street, you know? Um, and I think that when you talk in the terms that are so often like floated out on Twitter or whatever, that's kind of the sense that you can get. And I think that's what spurns so much of the, uh, the anger that's seeing people, you know, throwing Molotovs through mom and pop shops and stuff. Well, yeah, and I guess my, my, my other question for you was, did it seem to you that there was a racial motivation here? And I think that the assumption for most people, well, for many people, uh, from the get-go is that there is. If the, if, the, um, if the officer is white and the, the civilian is black, then it's racially motivated, full stop. And right. I think that that doesn't, I mean, that's very hard to prove in many cases. Um, and I think another, another thing is that um, you can't say that there are um, that there aren't racial discrepancies in this country that are um, that are not that are not connected to racism. So I think there are somewhere um, there's sometimes there's a discrepancy that may not actually be the result of 
bias or discrimination, right? So for example, um, people talk a lot about the pay gap between men and women, but most of, or if not all of that pay gap can be explained in terms of the choices that men and women make, the fact that um, uh, men tend to be more career focused and women may have a uh, tension split between you know, family and work and so on and so forth. And that when you remove from the equation, um, you know, um, women who are mothers or whatever, then you, you start to see some of this. So basically when you get rid of all these sort of extraneous factors, you find more of a parity. And I think there are a lot of examples um, between, uh, in, in this country right now, uh, where you see an apparent discrepancy between black and white that doesn't always end up being significant in, in a, uh, as, as a proof of discrimination. So I think, um, for example, so okay, I'll, I'll start with some that do. So there's, uh, there's been a lot of studies that have suggested that black people are more likely to be profiled by police than white people are. And that generally speaking, those, that profiling ends up not being warranted. It doesn't really turn out um, that, you know, so, so for example, police are more likely to stop a black person looking for pot or you know, drugs in the car than they are a white person, but they're not necessarily more likely to find drugs in a black person's car than they are a white person's car. Um, but I think with police violence specifically, um, that I think becomes harder to prove that racial motivation, uh, racist motivation is primary. Um, and, and I think it's even hard to prove if it's, if it's, if it's connected at all. Um, but especially if you want to say that it's primary, but, um, as you look at the, the Blake situation, do you think that it's obvious as, as some people say like, well, if he were white, this wouldn't have happened as if, um, you know, <laughs> as if, you know, police interact with millions of people a day. It's not the case that every time a black person acts a fool that they get shot or every time a white person um, acts a fool that they don't, right? <laughs> right, right. And so um, to, to your overarching point, I think the very nature of the argument that is so often put forward by Black Lives Matter is that um, systemic racism is this insidious, uh, unfalsifiable charge about society um, sort of writ large and we have to be you know we, we talked before we got on about anti-racism i'm sure we'll revisit it but that now anti-racism is the, is going to be the cure that we have to be actively um combating racism in all forms um, and bias to ensure that we can change these sorts of problems but i think that it's sort of a it's it's sort of an irreconcilable issue that they find themselves in because um first you know it's this issue of systemic racism which necessarily means that it's not individually perpetrated but uh the, a problem of systems and policies but then when these issues come up the solution that's uh called for is never policy change or, or very rarely instead it's that we need to see police officers um, the individual shooters uh persecuted or prosecuted rather and uh, that they need to have murder charges, murder one charges, whatever. And all of that is fair enough. And I'm not against um, these cops being uh, prosecuted to the full extent of the law, but um, it's, it's purposefully sort of like whitewashing all of the complexities of these issues and then not really answering the charge that they're making about, about systemic racism, um, which I think is something I, I don't really agree uh, necessarily with anti uh, with um, systemic racism being the primary cause of these issues, um, and I also don't think that there's 
like a policy you can make um, or propose that would solve it. I'm sure you uh, are familiar with like the Jack Dorsey um, constitutional amendment to anti-racism thing. Did you hear about that? Yeah, yeah, I'm familiar with that. Yeah, so I mean, maybe you can do that and we can have a panel of, um, you know, Soviet commissars on race to tell us whether or not something is racist. But, uh, you know, I, I, I think that in a case like this one, uh, race aside, we've seen um, scores of videos of white people being shot unnecessarily um, and unjustifiably. I, I think that we would be doing, we do ourselves a disservice when we talk about race um, first and foremost in these issues because uh, the culture and the uh, legislature that offers that cop the option in his mind to pull the trigger seven times into the back of this person um, is the thing that we need to be really trying to guard ourselves against. Uh, and I don't think it's really all that useful to talk about whether or not Jacob Blake is black. Yeah, well, and I think so I, I kind of look at this in a multifaceted way. So on the one hand, um, a lot of so a lot of the solutions that specifically focus on color, for example, um, uh, implicit bias training has not turned out to be very effective for um, lowering these, you know, uh, the numbers of these kinds of uh, police violence. Um, but solutions which specifically focus on violence training and holding police accountable has shown to be positive. So ultimately, I guess what I would say is um, the kind of the libertarian perspective, which looks at this primarily as an issue of state violence being unchecked, um, even if race is a factor, I think um, dealing with this, this question as a racial question doesn't seem to uh, really turn much up, but dealing with it as a, a question of state violence would, would lower the amount of people killed by police unnecessarily anyway. Um, and that would include black people. So I think, yeah, tr treating this as primarily a racial thing has not really tended to, to make much of an impact. But I think, um, yeah, beyond that, it's tough to say, like, you know, this is because he was black. Like, you know, it's hard to know that. Um, and I think about, like, Breonna Taylor, where that, uh, you know, the, the woman who was, you know, shot in a, uh, a, um, a no-knock raid in Louisville, Kentucky, um, and that's treated as an example of racism. And they'll say, well, you know, it's race. And I think ultimately this is an issue where at what point does, um, do you start to assign blame? Because it really begins with the fact that these no-knock raids exist. Mm -hmm. um, and then once these police who go in, who are, who are executing a lawful raid and are following orders, they bust through someone else who's in the, her boyfriend who's in the house starts shooting back because someone's breaking into his house and he doesn't know shooting shoot first. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's the way they, you know, he, he's reacting to, um, mm -hmm. you know, a, a threat that he sees. Right. And there's nothing wrong with him doing that. Uh, but then of course the police return fire, <laughs> um, which, you know, once they're in there, it's like, okay, well you're being shot. At. So it, it's kind of one of these things that the situation that was created um, by um, the fact that our, our, our legal system allows these things to happen kind of puts everybody in like a no-win situation. And to say that it's, um, you know, if she wasn't black, she wouldn't be alive today, it doesn't really track with me. Um, and, and in addition, of course, um, you could compare it to the situation with Duncan Lemp, who was also killed by a SWAT team and was white, um, and still has not received justice. Now, 
you know, <laughs> I think with, with, with the Breonna Taylor thing, they're expecting very quick, um, very people are expecting a very quick turnaround and say, well, her, the officers haven't been arrested yet. And that's because of systemic racism, because people don't care that the black woman was shot. Well, I mean, I think public pressure is going to be a pretty, pretty major motivator uh, for one thing. But really, the, the reality is that in a situation where the police unions require a very slow process because they want to make sure that the, the police get their, um, you know, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, um, due process, um, it becomes very difficult to, it becomes more difficult to hold police accountable than it does civilians. And that's not because the system's racist. That's because the system has been rigged toward police. Mm -hmm. Right. And, you know, even if all of that uh, weren't the case, you know, you can see by the behaviors of the people protesting this stuff that the solutions are really sort of secondary to the protest itself and to fomenting this um these uprisings or whatever. So, uh, yeah, a simple but obvious example, um, we had a senator introduce a bill to end federally no-knock raids and named it after Breonna Taylor. And he found himself in a mob of these very same protesters who he's acting on behalf of, the same cause anyway, um, being shouted down and threatened and uh, with his wife, which I think, you know, I, I can't imagine being in that situation, but I think he showed an extremely... Uh, an extremely noble amount of restraint. Um, if, if me and my wife were walking down the, the road and we were being mobbed by all of these people, I don't know that I would have been able to just like, I mean, I guess he had the benefit of Parks Police surrounding him, but like, I mean, how he didn't lash out and get violent himself is kind of astonishing. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I don't think that these, very often I don't think that the problem um, that they're rallying about is really something that they want to solve. I think that um, that's why there's so much uh, obfuscation with the way that we talk about things. And there's so much uh, rhetoric employed to sort of muddy the waters and make things extremely one-dimensional. Um, and I, I, it's scary. Uh, it's really scary because I don't think we're in a place where we can have rational political discourse about any of these problems. Um, except to, you know, loot and, and destroy things and, uh, demand, demand that, that the opposing political side capitulate, not that any change is really made. Um, so yeah, I, I totally agree with you that, uh, there are huge structural changes that need to be, um, that need to be either made by Congress or various state legislatures to change no-knock raids and the way that police interact. Their cultures are terrible. And I think you and I have talked about this a little bit, but um, police culture and military culture are uh, really analogous. And there's this um, divide in their own minds between themselves and the lesser civilian. And I think that right there, there's uh, the beginning of the dehumanization process that allows for them to treat quote unquote civilians the way that they often do um, as if they're like they're, they're uh, nationals in some occupied country and not yeah. people that they're supposed to be protecting and serving. Um, but in, in a case like Jacob Blake's, I, I think that we as libertarians, um, I'm kind of drawing you in here, would be really wise um, 
unlike what the LP National wants to tweet out every day, to really draw a distinction uh, between the conversations that are happening on the ground between left and right and the fact that like this is a systemic problem because of the way that we police, the way that we criminalize so much of um, peaceful life and start really making proposals about the way that we can change that. Um, because I don't think that, I don't even think it's all that useful for you and I to speculate about race versus not race because it doesn't matter to either side, I, I don't think. Well, I think it ought to, right? I mean, I think that kind of, kind of what, I'm, what I'm hoping to do is present a, um, an alternative way of looking at this where we actually look at the facts and we're um, not quick to rush to judgment or just kind of believe what we want to believe about the situation. And I'm, I'm hoping that uh, somehow that, that gives an, you know, a leading by example kind of approach like, hey, you know, you guys have really dropped the ball on this and you really simplified a lot of these cases and you've rushed to judgment. And what the result is that there've been, there've been, there's been a lot of property destruction, there's been actual deaths and maybe we need to slow things down. Now, is, are people going to listen to that? You know, hopefully some, but, um, you know, I, I know what you're saying, though. Um, so I was going to mention that you talked about the senator who was being mobbed, um, Rand Paul, um, who's a Republican, and he introduced the Justice for Breonna Taylor Act, um, which I'm, I haven't really heard much about that since he introduced that. I don't know how that's doing. Um, but that was, yeah, that was the idea that it was going to, uh, supposed to end no-knock raids, right? Right. Um Actually, see, the, the, the act bans federal law enforcement officers from carrying out a warrant until after the officer provides notice of his or her authority and purpose. So, yeah, and, and of course, the, the, the irony is that as Rand Paul is, 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 uh, is walking through the street here, he's getting mobbed by these people saying, say her name, say her name, I'm talking about Breonna Taylor. And it's like, uh, I've said her name. I introduced the bill named after her. <laughs> um, but, you know, do they know? Do they care? Um, you know, once again, the rush to judgment is what's important um, for them, not the, uh, the actual facts on, on the ground. Um, well, I, I would just say that whether they know or care um, is, is equally disturbing. If they don't know or they don't care, that's that's terrible. Um, and if they do know, uh, and they continue to act like this, I think it's really telling that, um, again, it's not about actually implementing change. Um, and, and that would, I mean, um, maybe it would be a little bit symbolic because the federal officers, uh, that would be affected aren't necessarily the ones that are, um, doing a lot of the damage that is spurring the protest but like i mean this is a huge change in the way that law enforcement has to operate and it's thanks to him like this individual guy that you're mobbing um and so i think in every conceivable way um it's it's a real indictment of their position because i mean <laughs> I, I, how can you be targeting this guy um except to like be you know terrorizing him and i don't know i we, we had spoken before this about how distressing i find that this moment um and it's not to say that i'm hopeless but i i do think that this period in american history will be a formative one um and hopefully for the good but i'm i'm not super convinced that that is possible 
Yeah, yeah. Okay, so so we talked about Jacob Blake, and then from there, um, within a couple of days after that in Kenosha, well, actually, I think it's basically the day after he's he's shot, not killed. He was he's possibly paralyzed um, for life, but um, but the day after he's shot, um, Kenosha begins protesting, and not just protesting, but but looting and rioting, right? And uh, there, there's a there's a really uh, humorous um, screen capture from CNN where there's a reporter uh, standing in front of a, you know, basically it's just like it almost it's it's like an inferno behind him, and <laughs> everything's on fire, and the headline was uh, mostly peaceful protests in Kenosha, Washington, Wisconsin, yeah. right? Um, so anyway, so it, it, with all this going on, um, we have 17 year old kid Kyle Rittenhouse who travels across state lines, but but basically within a half an hour um, from his home to Kenosha with a semi-automatic rifle. That's how I've read it described. I'm not a gun guy. I know sometimes gun people get annoyed when you describe things incorrectly. Was yeah, it, that's correct. Semi-automatic. Would you call it an assault weapon? Uh, I try not to use that term because I feel like it's, um, you know, one of these political labels that is useless. Yeah. Um, but yes, tech, by, by the way that we all understand it, yeah, it was an assault rifle. Okay. So, um, okay. So he basically, he shows up saying, you know, he's going to guard businesses in Kenosha from rioters. And, um, that went about as well as can be expected. Um, so Rittenhouse, it ends up being chased by a mob. And at one point someone fires a gun kind of behind him, I think in the air. And right after this happens, he turns toward the gunfire at the same time that someone from this kind of mob chasing him lunges toward him. Uh, and I guess there was a witness who said that they reckoned that, they, that he was trying to take the gun from him. And Rittenhouse fires this guy four times, killing him. Uh, then he, you know, kind of goes away from the scene, calls a friend. There's some recording you can hear where he's walking by where he says, um, you know, I just killed somebody. Um, and he does, I, I've heard people say that he sounds gleeful, which I don't really think he does. I think he sounds kind of scared. Um, but uh, so anyway, right after this, this crowd forms around him. They identify him as the shooter. They're rushing toward him. One of them has a handgun, and Rittenhouse fires at them, and he kills one more guy and injures someone else. And uh, so you, you see, you hear him firing, and you see him firing, but there's also gunshots, like, all around him throughout this whole thing. Right. So he, he you know, leaves the scene, and police, like, you drive right by him to help those who've been shot, and he goes home and is arrested later. So immediately, I saw people on the left describing him as a terrorist who showed up with the intention of killing people. Uh, and then, you know, people on the right, including, you know, actually like a lot of libertarians, um, seem to be like very quick to sort of see him as like a hero. And, um, you know, just this guy who is using his Second, Second Amendment rights to defend himself. And of course, the NRA jumps up to defend him. Um, did they say anything? That one really, yeah. that one really bothered me. Yeah. Well, because you remember, they were so quick to defend Philando Castile for his legal right to possess a firearm when he was killed by a police officer, right? That's the only thing I could think when they yeah. came for this guy is like, you want to demonstrate um, questionable racial motivations. There's no better example than Philando Castile versus Kyle Rittenhouse. Could, could be. I, I, so if I wanted to give the NRA um, a little bit, not very much, honestly, but a little bit of credit <laughs> or charity, I could say, well, the difference was that they didn't want to say, they didn't want to attack police. And that's why they didn't want to defend Philando Castile because it would meant going, it would mean going against police. But right, I, I, I suspect there could be also, I think 
a racial motivation of they they saw I, I don't even necessarily think that's true but I, I think that it's a really convenient way to frame it for opponents um for the most useless gun organization in america yeah. and um you know like it's if that's the case and i don't mean to get too off the topic but if that's the case it just goes to show that like we've actually institutionalized the misunderstanding about people with molon labe tags or whatever it is uh, not understanding who it is that's going to come and take it i mean we saw it he, I, it's just i don't know it's so disappointing but uh continue you were doing a great job summarizing before I interrupt. oh yeah oh, i was gonna say i did i did when i looked this up um dana loesch i think her name is who is an nra spokesperson she had claimed when the when they were saying well why isn't the nra uh, defending Flando castile she said well he was in possession of a controlled substance and a firearm simultaneously which is illegal and as we all know the nra is very concerned about making sure you follow the legal gun laws right they don't they wouldn't say that any of those are unconstitutional or anything Right. And if that's all the case, then Kyle Rittenhouse falls into the category of being possession of an illegal firearm. Yeah. Because he wasn't supposed to have it being under 17, right? Right. You can't being carry under 17. Yeah. yeah. Under 18, rather. And, um, yeah. Oh, boy. Okay. I was going to say something real quick. So we haven't heard from Ari yet. And I'm starting to wonder, I know he's got a, uh, a baby on the way. And I wonder Ooh. if it's possible, maybe it's not what's going on, but I wonder if it's possible that that's the reason why, uh, He's not responding to our messages right now. Well, if it <laughs> is, congratulations. Like yeah, if it is. Family. Yes, if it is, then congratulations. If not, then come on, Ari. What are you doing? <laughs> you picked, You said 2 o'clock. It's 2 o'clock. Where are you? All right. So, um, <laughs> okay. So, yeah. So, basically, right away, everybody's just, just jumping on Rittenhouse one way or the other, positive or negative. And I personally was, like, really mortified at that, mm -hmm. that there were people who um, – I guess I was more mortified in one sense the way the people on the right uh, defended him. I mean, I, th I think the people on the left were very quick to make an assumption. I, we have this sort of thing. It's almost like we sort of check for the jerseys, you know, like what, what team are you on? And um, we're very quick to sort of go, okay, well, okay, who's this guy? Uh, okay, he's a cop. Okay, well, he was bad then. Or, you know, this guy, he, what colors? He's black. Okay, then he was all right. And I think, you know, that's not, you, you don't do that. You don't say what team are you on? Okay, I know you're good or bad. You sort of say what happened, you know, and and right. um, I didn't see that really going on. It seemed like people were saying, "Well, you know, he was shooting communists, so you know, whatever." And, and it's like that's not, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, so well, just to to kind of go off there a little bit, I think that there is so much that we can take away from the Rittenhouse situation, um, but one of the biggest ones is that he is an immediate political flashpoint. We don't really know a whole lot about the most fundamental part of the case, which is when he shot uh, Rosenbaum, was it a justified shoot or not? If he killed that man justifiably, then the people attacking him uh, subsequently are at least in uh, murky waters as to whether or not they should have been. And it's understandable, I think, if you're at a rally, you see some guy don't know the circumstances shoot some other dude in the head that you go after him i think it's unwise that you just watch someone shoot someone in the head and then you try to attack them with a skateboard um but they did that and maybe they were doing it from an honorable point uh point of view but either way whether or not when he fired on rosenbaum uh, was justifiable or not is really fundamental and no one's really talking about that too much i think the new york times piece we talked about I did a really good job of 
talking about how little they could really get from the video that was available. Um, yeah, that, that was then, something I, I posted on Facebook. There was, yeah, there was a New York Times article that gives a kind of a blow-by-blow account that was, um, I thought, surprisingly objective. Yeah. yeah. And then you, then you kind of devolve into leftist screeching and right meme world. And I, I find it hilarious that um, I don't think it's a great, it's easy to get a good sense of what it is that, that the right feels about a thing oftentimes because you'll get these ridiculous memes and and try to like distill their position from it but like you know him killing pedophiles and communists being celebrated i don't know that they're even really celebrating it but i mean it's certainly um the the sense that you would get from it but uh it's just such a crazy time to be trying to consume media and get a good sense of where everybody's at yeah, and, and I mean, and as I look at Rittenhouse, I, I see Rittenhouse as a dumb kid who idolized cops and thought, you know, I, I'm going to be, um, um, you know, I, I'm going to play cops, basically. I'm going to play cop, you know what I mean? He goes in there thinking, like, I'm going to um, defend property and I'm going to stand there with a gun and everybody's going to respect me and they're going to, you know, leave leave everybody, leave all these businesses and homes alone or whatever. And um, I just think he, he was a dumb kid who got in over his head. There was early reports that his mom drove him there, which if that's the case, I mean, what a terrible mother. But um, I don't know if that's actually true because I haven't seen much about that when I tried to research it. Um, but yeah, I, I don't, I mean, it could be that it'll come out that he went there intentionally to kill people, but I suspect that he didn't. Um, you know, they've got video of him kind of helping out with things earlier on. I think there's, I even read something that he was um, handing out like water supplies to protesters earlier on in the night. Um, but if, if you look at it, I mean, he's not going, it's not like he's in waiting to shoot people. He's being chased and he reacts because he's frightened. And I think that's the most obvious reading of the situation. Um, so I don't think he's a hero. I don't think he's a terrorist. I think he was a dumb kid, um, who thought that he was going to save the day. Um, and that's just not what happened. But I mean, is, do you, do you, do you see that differently or? No, I think that that's probably the best reading of it with everything we have so far. Um, and it's unfortunate that he was in a circumstance and had so little support that he thought it was wise to bring a rifle to a protest like this. Yeah. And then he gets separated from his group and, um, you know, is not trained enough to make wise choices with a firearm. Um, and you know, this is, this is the outcome. I think the onus ultimately is on him and whomever, gave him the the go-ahead to to get out there with a rifle and you know play vigilante but um or or security guard whatever um he shouldn't have been there and i think that that's a really fair point for the left to be making um but but but, it's also it's also true that the people who are burning down car dealerships shouldn't have been there either right (laughs) and that's exactly the point that needs to you know the counterpoint that needs to be made is like you know, we've devolved into absolute chaos in some of these areas and the same media that's quick to absolutely skewer this kid and paint him in the least um, gracious possible light up to and including U.S. senators considering him a white nationalist terrorist going there to attack Black Lives Matter protesters as if that's um, a useful way to be framing the situation on day two. Uh, You know, I, I think that 
we aren't really talking in normal terms about what's going on here. And yeah, you know, uh, you can wrap your head around why it is that he would feel like he should be there or want to be there, want to help out. Yeah. I saw a video of where he was like yelling that he was an EMT and that he was going to provide care to these protesters that were pepper sprayed. Um, so, you know, he seems like just kind of like a hardo goofball 17 year old who someone gave a rifle to. Yep. All right. So that, so basically the, the next chain of events here, um, and I, maybe this is more tangentially related, but I think it's connected. And so all the stuff that's happening in Kenosha uh, amps up the already constant violence that's been going on in Portland. Um, and so what, what kind of got added into the mix is that all these Trump supporters came out in Portland where leftists had been like there every night trying to set, you know, things on fire. Um, and so, of course, the Trump supporters show up, they clash with the left-wingers, and the result, result for that evening was that a Trump supporter named Aaron Danielson was shot and killed by a left-wing protester, um, who was basically, I think they tried to say early on that he, it was some kind of an in-defense or whatever, but there's video of yeah. him, like, lying in wait, hiding behind a pillar, and he just kind of runs up on this guy and murders him. Um, and of course, all the people who were, were, you know, all the people on the left who were, um, talking about what, how much of a terrorist Rittenhouse was very quickly came out against, uh, <laughs> this, this, uh, left-wing shooter, right? Yeah. Uh, but no, yeah. actually that, that didn't happen, but, <laughs> but yeah. So then he, of course, he tries to escape and then police later kill him while they're attempting to arrest him. So it's clearly, this guy is clearly unstable. I read an article where they were talking to his sister quite a bit. And he had a lot of issues and was arrested while racing at 110 miles an hour on the highway against his like 17-year-old son, both of whom were intoxicated. Uh, you know, he sounds like he has a really, uh, he had a really unstable life. Um, it seems like something you'd expect to hear from like a Trump supporter doing. That doesn't seem like somebody like a leftist would do, right? Right, yeah. <laughs> well, if you were to read CNN, I guess that's the perspective you'd have to have. But um, I, I do think that that's kind of the inconvenient outcome of like trying to keep score and suggest that this is a, you know, the right wing is uniquely violent. Uh, mm -hmm. And, and you'd think that if that were the case, when it did happen from a leftist, like in a baseball field filled with politicians, or in this case, that they would be quick to like absolutely distance themselves from it, but they still obfuscate and make it really difficult to understand how it is that, this guy came to shoot somebody else um and they still managed to like kind of paint aaron danielson as um the villain in the story yeah which is odd um yeah because we, because we don't we don't look at the facts as they are we look at what team everybody's on right yeah and so and, and you know I, I there was an interesting um for what's going on in portland i've been really fascinated um in following nancy rommelman's um uh, articles she's been writing for uh, Reason. Mag well, actually, I don't, I don't think they've ended up in the magazine, but you can read them on reason.com. Um, so she's been a reporter who's been embedded there. And her most recent one was, uh, was the, her, uh, the headline was, you're not allowed to film the fight to control who reports from Portland. And what's going on there is that there are all these protesters who are trying to um, uh, limit the kind of filming that's happening and who is doing the filming. Um, because they want to control the narrative. So they are funneling their videos out uh, through a, this kind of um, 
third party who um, was passing them along to the, the, the mass, you know, major media. Um, and there are all these videos where the protesters are being, you know, attacked by cops or the cops appear to be the aggressors. And they don't want reporters who are there who are showing the protesters um, starting the violence, right? Or, or, you know, trying to get a rise out of cops. Um, and so there's this real sense that they have that, you know, they want to um, obfuscate the truth. They, they want to show one side. And actually, they don't, they don't just want to show one side. They want to try to force an excessive reaction from police so that that way they can film that reaction and paint that reaction as what police are just doing, you know, un, unprovoked, right? And so if they can basically prevent this, present this narrative as we're just here peacefully protesting and police are just, you know, beating the hell out of us, um, that, that helps. That's kind of the narrative they want to get out there. But the reality is that that's not at least what's happening in Portland. Maybe there have been other places where that has happened, um, but it's not happening in Portland. <laughs> you know, well, there, there is police violence, but there's also a lot of protester violence. Um, right, and it's been, it's been persistent since like June. Like yeah, like three months or something now, right? Yeah, yeah. So R Rommelman's um, articles and videos, I would recommend people check out. Um, if they want to get a sense of what's going on there. But so anyway, all this to say um, is 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 violence helping us to make a better country? Do we think is that is that being effective or? <laughs> no, and I I think that we're destined to see a lot more of it, unfortunately, because of the terms in which we're talking, mm -hmm. and I am. Um, hypercritical of the American right wing, um, usually more so than the left, because I, I do think that I have some, um, at least like sympathetic understanding of where they're coming from. Um, but the, the left is talking in terms, the fringe left, the left that's actually moving the needle on any of this stuff is talking in terms that almost necessarily means we can only solve these problems with more violence. When um, every cop is a racist who cannot be solved, you know, um, they, they can't, they can't be trained into, um, being decent people and everybody that is to the right of, um, you know, the gas mask protester is a fascist. Uh, we have to necessarily understand that, that violence has to be the, the means to whatever end they, they imagine for themselves. And it's scary because, um, you know, this kid, Aaron, da man, Aaron Danielson, um, was by the reading so far, a pretty conventional right centrist Trump supporter who, uh, after months of seeing his own city, he was a resident, even though that was not initially reported. Uh, they tried to paint it as if he was another outsider, um, was killed. It, we were talking as if like he was trying to get everybody in, in, in Portland to be wearing brown shirts. And it's like, he's, he's looking at the, the destruction of his city and, and trying to come to, to its aid in some way, whether or not that's correct is, you know, obviously up for debate. And I, I wouldn't be there and I won't go to any of these precisely because I can't imagine that they'll do anything positive for society. But, um, I just, I don't, I don't know how else to read the tea leaves except to say that this looks like more violence on the horizon unless we all get bored or winter comes and everybody has to shudder inside um you know the the writing is sort of on the wall yeah and, and i i i i wonder too if this is kind of what one of these areas where the church ought to be representing a 
um, an alternative society, right? Where we, we don't do this kind of stuff or our approach is very different. And I think about, you know, the Christian civil rights movement in the 60s, and you compare that to the more secular movements that sort of come later that are more steeped in violence. Um, and, you know, and I think, you know, Black Lives Matter as a movement is definitely not um, strongly affiliated with church. And so they're, they're definitely more like, uh, they're not tethered to um, strong moral foundations apart from the moral foundation that racism is bad. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, okay, yeah, obviously racism is bad, but how, you know, how do we build a better society? What should our goal be? And what, what are the means that are appropriate, the moral means that are appropriate to use that to do, you know, to get there? And they don't really have that, that background. So it's, you get different answers from different people. And then of course, you know, there are other factions and other groups. BLM is not Antifa, um, but, and also BLM is not even BLM sometimes because they're very, they're very bottom up kind of organization. So it's hard to sort of say exactly what BLM's going to believe or say. Yeah. BLM particularly, I think by design doesn't have like a, like a, a modus operandi. They, they have leaders who believe in, you know, as we've all become aware, like pretty expressly Marxist, Marxist Leninist sorts of uh, reforms for society. But, you know, we also see like just soccer moms wearing Black Lives Matter t-shirts. And I think that that's the victory of the rhetorical left and how, how they're able to use language uh, super effectively. Um, yeah, I, I just had a conversation with a friend about this where I was kind of highlighting that it's a bit like being um, 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 upsold by a, a, car, a car dealer, right? Where like you sort of go, yeah, well, so what's, what's feminism? What's, what's feminism? Explain that to me. And they say, oh, what's the idea that men and women should be equal? Oh, oh, yeah, I believe that. I guess I'm a feminist. Okay, great. So then you think that um, all heterosexual sex is rape and that uh, we should, you know, uh, have abortion on demand that's paid for by the government. Well, wait, 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 hold on. I didn't have to say that. Yeah. It's like you, so, you find that you've been like tricked into this, there's kind of this bait and switch where, you know, I don't want the deluxe package. You know, I just want men and women should be equal. And I think BLM's a lot like that too, where it's like, well, of course, Black Lives Matter. You know, what, you know, what, what are you talking about? But then, you know, next thing you know, <laughs> you're getting roped into we should destroy the nuclear family, mm-hmm. and um, and so it's, it's just a very there's just kind of this bait and switch where people sort of get you in the deluxe package, and it's it's a very kind of dishonest use of language. Well, and I think it serves to my earlier point about not actually wanting to change policy. It serves the um, various like thought leaders in these groups like Black Lives Matter to not actually change anything because you know every corporate boardroom is all on board. Uh, every, every major, um, whether it's an app or you know, academia, the media, they all bend over backwards to make sure that they represent um, the various iterations of Black Lives Matter or racial equality. Which is all well and good to the um, you know Silicon Valley uh, white suburbanite who just wants to see more justice for uh, people of color, which I agree with. Um, but they're able to capitalize on that and you know continue agitating for further for further. Um, I think just just 
dissent within the U.S., which I think serves their ultimate aims, um, you know, much like uh, the Bolsheviks would have, um, you know, the, that same playbook. And it doesn't matter how many people are on board. It doesn't matter how institutionalized Black Lives Matter becomes, because as long as there's a single video circulating on the Internet of a new, um, a new questionable killing by police, um, there will always be fuel for the fire. And, um, you know, I, again, I think that that's by design. I don't think that they want the change so much as they want the, the control of the narrative. Sure. Well, yeah, and, and, and I think there's also this kind of co-opting, too, where we think that Black Lives Matter speaks for Black people. And so when they talk about defunding the police or sometimes, you know, getting rid of the police, I think there's been an assumption among, you know, white liberal college kids who are bored and have nothing to do because COVID is keeping them out of school. And that, that, you know, this is what Black people want. And if I, you know, if, I'm, if I support getting rid of the police, that's me helping Black people. But when you talk to black people, especially black people in the inner city, they don't want police gone. They just want them reformed. They just want, you know, the, the, the problems to stop. They just want, you know, you know what I mean? Right. They don't want them gone, though. They, 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 they feel like this is something that is, they generally want in their neighborhoods. Um, and so the radicals, it's kind of that, whole, you know, the, the, the same sort of phenomenon of like when Marxism was big in this country and, you know, among college kids, like in the 60s, where, you know, you had all these. Um, you know, trust fund babies going to, you know, Berkeley and, and Harvard and stuff, and then telling, you know, uh, uh, you know, plumbers and construction workers that they were, you know, they were, they were there for the fight and that they were, you know, supported the proletariat and that it was their revolution and these construction workers like, what are you talking about? Um, and so, you know, there's this kind of, you know, we, you know, we'll, we'll speak for you kind of thing that happens. Um, well, and, actually to that, to that end, that's the, that's the foundation of why it is that I have a lot of hope for the direction ultimately of where we're going as a society, because mm -hmm. the conventional Joe six pack, the guy who sort of like um, ebbs and flows with the political narratives and just sort of tries to keep their head down and punch the clock. I think that's the vast majority of Americans left, right and center. And I think that um, just as, as communists um, in the fifties and sixties, were trying to figure out why it is that, uh, the working class won't throw off the yoke of um, capitalism, I think that they'll find that eventually uh, the energy is going to fizzle out of these like radical leftist world-changing groups. And, um, you know, th there will instead be like a sort of like a recalibration towards the center, um, which I think is healthy ultimately uh, as an alternative anyway. Um, but I, I just don't see how uh, in the short run, we're not going to see more violence and more escalation, especially if the people who are, you know, professional protesters, it seems, are uh, continually animated by what's going on. Um, and how we don't have more of these shootings like the one from uh, Portland, I, I don't know. Yeah, you mentioned the Bolsheviks earlier. I wish that more people on the left would study Russian history and the French Revolution, uh, or even, you know, if, if you don't have a lot of time, just read A Tale of Two Cities. <laughs> but, like, just this kind of, this, this idea that we sort of have that the current system's so bad that anything would be better, especially if it comes from a revolutionary left-wing movement. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the lessons that we learned from, from Russia, from the Russian Revolution and from the French Revolution is that it can always get worse. And um, generally speaking, it gets worse when leftists take over, <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, and I think, you know, 
um, I, I mention this a lot, but Gil Scott Heron had this poem where he was talking about, um, you know, these, these kind of white, this white hippie coming up to him and, you know, trying to say we were kind of all on the same team. And he said, you know, like, no, we're not. Like, I just want to be able to take care of my family and have food to eat and a place to sleep. And you're talking about, like, you know, trying to have orgies in the streets. Um, and so I think most people are on that, just trying to have a place to live and, and be able to take care of my family side of things. And I think that's where libertarianism should have a strong inroad with people if they kind of understood it, which is basically just to say that we're going to, you know, stop coercing. We're going to stop using force and um, we're going to let you live your life. And if you want to, you know, live your life in a commune where, you, you know, you, you voluntarily redistribute all of your own wealth, um, then you are free to do that. You can create a progressive or socialist society at any time. You just don't need to, you know, go in the streets and, and, and you know, set buildings on fire to do it. Um, and I think that's kind of the, 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 the freedom I see in libertarianism. And, it's, and I think that's also where I see it connected to Christianity because Christianity is, is not connected with force and coercion either. And so that's kind of why I feel comfortable inhabiting both of those spheres. But. Yeah, and as you're saying that, I'm thinking, what does it look like for the libertarian movement or the libertarian party even um, to model itself off of the uh, peaceful agitation for change that uh, the, the church has shown throughout history. Um, you know, I always try to make the point to, uh, to leftists or secular leftists, particularly that, you know, the Quaker abolition movement was, uh, one of the oldest and one of the purest from an ideological standpoint, looking back, they genuinely believed in like equity often, and, um, not just like a, a pragmatic thing that, you know, slavery is, um, you know, bad for business or uneconomical. They truly believed in like, you know, freeing people um for the sake of the people um and you know they they had a really amazing way of of asserting their position peacefully and subversively and uh i think we're a great example to christians uh, today it's just how, what does that look like uh, how do we how do we assert uh, a subversive liberty oriented and or in our in our world, a, a Christ-oriented alternative to what it is that's happening now, because you know, whenever whenever we're talking politics, I think that the the ultimate ends for libertarians or liberty-minded folks has to be deconstructing the machine that everyone's wrestling for control over. Um, until that is like the overarching point that libertarians are making, I don't think we're going to make a whole lot of inroads with anybody because um, you know, there's already there's already a left and a right available. And the more we play in the culture wars, uh, I think the, the more um, just like some, the, the other side we appear. Uh, but, you know, getting, getting that machine broken down and doing it in a subversive, maybe even apolitical way uh, is probably the best course. And it's just what that looks like is hard to say. Yeah, you know, in, in my last... Um video and podcast I did, I talked about some of the reasons why um, we have the polarization we do. And one example that I didn't give, and but I think is, is probably significant, is that for the left and right, uh, violence is central to their solutions. And it's also a zero-sum game. You know, if the right wins, the left loses. If the left wins, the right loses. 
and so they're both trying to force a way of life on others um, through force. And so when, when you think of it that way, like it's, it's like almost like a no brainer why, you know, if you're on one side of the spectrum, you would be terrified of the people on the other side and why you would think like, you know, these people are terrible, you know, awful monsters or whatever. Um, <laughs> and but what do you think is, what do you think is substantially different about today? Because that's always been the case in um, the U S mm -hmm. mostly when, when you have a two party yeah. uh, system over government. So what, what has changed so dramatically that, that we're at this uh, fever pitch now? So I gave a few examples in my last podcast. I mean, I did talk about the role that social media plays um, in kind of um, uh, connecting to that lizard brain part of ourselves that, you know, that works on fear. Um, I think the fact that politics has become a religion and displaced Christianity is a big part of it. So, um, you know, it tend, generally speaking, when you have a society that lacks some kind of um, central thing to make it cohesive, that society will end up in, you know, civil war and, you know, all kinds of problems, right? Um, various kinds of divisions. And I think we don't have anything that centers us anymore. You know, at one point, you know, even if not everybody was a Christian, at least there was kind of a Judeo-Christian backdrop. Um, and uh, what was it? The... Uh, um, can't remember who, I'm trying to remember who it was off the top of my head right now. Oh, it might have been Eisenhower. Eisenhower's kind of um, um, civil religion idea, right? That we kind of, as Americans, had this kind of generalized religious view. Um, and I think, yeah, basically at this point, we don't have very much that keeps us unified anymore. And, you know, I would obviously like to see Christ be that. But I think for even for those who don't hold to religious view, um, if we could start with this kind of notion that people, you know, have a right to life and to live their life as they want, rights to their life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Um, if, if I think if we could all kind of agree on that, I think it would be much easier for us to even have some of the things that, that, um, that where we differ on, right? The things that separate us. Um, because, you know, nobody goes, drives by Amish country and says, those Amish, they're going to take over. You know, we, you know, I, I don't trust them one bit or, you know, Hasidic Jews and, you know, Brooklyn or whatever. And it's because they, they that's not what they're interested in doing. They're not interested in, in, in using violence to uh, take but over society. Maybe as like a, um, to, to argue that a little bit, I think that the, um, the coastal leftist, or even like liberal elitist would look down their nose at the Amish and consider them like a basically a non-factor. Mm -hmm. But for the um, for for Mr. Danielson, um, there's an expectation for capitulation that I think we have to reckon with on like the right or yeah. you know because they're the all answer. fighting for control, right? And, well. But conservatives, at least even rhetorically, but but very often I think in practice, they do want to take control and then like break away the um, the political infrastructure from like daily life. Whereas the left and the liberal elitist often wants to, you know, remake the world and that world maker sort of like hashtag that I'm constantly throwing around to try to make the point that like it's it's a different it's an entirely different way to view the world. And it's why I have a lot in common with like a Noam Chomsky who 
uh, is very much like a, a, a leftist or a Michel Foucault, but doesn't want that same capitulation, right? Like where I, I feel like the, um, the, the furthest left 5% are, you know, I have a lot of kinship with them, but it's the remaining, it's the remaining interim um, where they genuinely want uh, everyone else to accept all of the presuppositions about the way they view the world. Um, and it, it, any, any sort of dissent is like, uh, it's, it, it's to fight against like the, their version of morality, broadly speaking. And, and, and you, you don't think, you know, like right-wingers have that same kind of instinct? Because I feel like if they, if they didn't, they would just be libertarians. <laughs> yeah. I don't think right now, um, I, like 30 years ago, I would have said absolutely not, right? Even like the, uh, Bill Buckley's of the world, um, as abhorrent as he was in so many ways, was sort of like a leftist, right? Like he was uh, a big government Republican. I think like old right conservatism and then the Joe Sixpack average, more or less apolitical um, constituent who may have voted for Trump or even like vociferously supports Trump because of some of the things they represent. Um, I, I think that they very much want government to be less intrusive in their lives and they want less of like the, the fever pitch of politics that we have today. I think most of the tension that we have is from like a leftward pull. Uh, and whether or not that's in the name of like genuine altruism or for the sake of agitation to like remake the way that we you know, compose society, I don't know. I'm sure there's, you know, varying uh, motives, but I, I, I genuinely don't think that the average Trump supporter is, a, is an authoritarian like, like uh, so many of the Biden-Harris camp will be. Um. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think um, a right-winger is probably less likely to have a comprehensive uh, top-down approach to the way they think the, the country should be run. I think that they were, they're going to definitely be in favor of um, kind of a more of a bottom-up approach. But I think to say, I mean, so yeah, I mean, if you want to talk about, for example, the, the kind of nation building of like a George W. Bush, that's different than like a Donald Trump who mostly wants to uh, stay out of it out of what the rest of the world is doing but he still is in favor of tariffs he still has a very um, kind of draconian immigration philosophy um and, and he's trump's, still, a, trump's a perfect uh belt he's a perfect like sort of encapsulation of the right today he's mm -hmm. never read anything he's never thought critically about any of this stuff and he doesn't really have a comprehensive view of the world and i think that's that's the sort of leader that the right deserves today because most of them don't. And that's because they don't really want to. And the left doesn't need to because they just work off of platitudes and bumper stickers. And then the right who, you know, has the responsibility to like be read about this stuff and think about this stuff, if they want to be the ones to conserve um, the world before them, they have to know what that was. And most of them don't today. Um, but I, I find them just less... less offensive like they're, they're not going to be the ones knocking on the door demanding my uh tribute the left will 
Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I definitely. I mean, I think both the right and left are not really comprehensively small government, but they do have areas where they they want to see less government. And but I, I think that for someone who's like more of a cultural Marxist, who is more authoritarian, what you're seeing is it used to be there was a left that was like liberal in the sense of free speech and freedom of religion and things like that, um, and I think that the left is getting more illiberal. And so I think there's, there, like I said, there used to be this kind of liberal left that's moving more into an illiberal left. And so they have a more comprehensive view, whereas maybe the right is not quite so comprehensive. Still not, I mean, really like pro-liberty across the board, but I think I could definitely understand the argument. I could definitely maybe uh, get behind, behind your argument that for like the cultural, you know, Marxists, so to speak, <laughs> they have a more comprehensive um, sense of what the government should be doing and forcing on everyone. So apart from the obvious stupidity of violence and riots, the other thing that comes to mind in all these accounts is how quick we are to make a judgment when we have almost no facts whatsoever. Uh, we just kind of check to see what team the players are on, check the jersey as it were, and then uh, we determine who is in the right and who is in the wrong, not by what they did, but by which group they identified with. I think one of the most symbolically significant um, uh, stories that illustrate this was uh, an event near the end of last month where a homicide suspect shot himself while being chased by police. And initial rumors that police had shot him prompted fresh protests and looting from people who didn't care to look into the facts before destroying the property of others. Uh, police have since released the video of the man killing himself, hoping to quell demonstrations. Um, and so as I look at it here, we aren't following the advice of Paul the Apostle. He reminds us what it means to love others. Love is patient and kind. It doesn't boast. It doesn't dishonor others. It's not self-seeking or easily angered. Further, it rejoices in truth. It doesn't react unthinkingly with violence or hatred, but it waits to get more information so it can understand what's going on. Uh, as for us, we don't want truth or justice. We just want to hate the people on the other team and call them morons. So speaking of... Um, treating people on the basis of what group they're in, <laughs> we're in an interesting moment when it comes to race relations right now. And much of it is spurred on by police violence, uh, which is argued to be targeted toward black people uniquely. But um, in general, there is this new movement, uh, which is called anti-racism, which seems intent on fighting racism, not using the old Martin Luther King strategy of seeing people as individuals and judging each person by the character but of forcing everyone into a racial group identity of either black victims or white victimizers who benefit from the exploitation of black people. Uh, opponents of this new philosophy point out that telling young white people that they should feel guilty for an accident of their birth is dehumanizing to them and will likely make racism worse. So Chloe Valdery, for instance, highlighted in a recent interview that if racism is rooted in insecurity, which is the common view in the field of psychology, then quote, it is a really bad idea if you want to end racism to try to do so by making people feel insecure, to make people feel self-contempt, end quote. A lot of white people have internalized white guilt and feel morally inferior because of their race. They can either remain in that terrible place of self-loathing or they can lash out and become emboldened in a white identity that they didn't have before. They were told that they do. <laughs> so. Um, by abandoning this notion that we should be able to be judged by our character that we found in King, we inflame racial animosity 
and we make the situation worse. So in addition to this, opponents of woke anti-racism have argued that it's also dehumanizing for black people. John McWhorter, for instance, laid out in his book, Losing the Race, uh, how the notion that black people are victims has bred low self-esteem, a um, philosophy of anti-intellectualism, and a black separatism that makes progress and integration very difficult. Concern for how our present focus on race might psychologically damage black people uh, was also displayed in a Twitter thread by an anonymous white academic whose profile has now disappeared, uh, but which has been preserved in a few other places online. Uh, so at publicola17 is the, the, the author of these tweets. And I uh, probably won't read all of them, but I wanted to kind of give a kind of a perspective, at least some of it here. Uh, it begins by him saying, woke anti-racism is child abuse. Um, and he highlights um, uh, Thomas Chatterton Williams' um, memoir, Self-Portrait in Black and White, where he sort of comes to terms with himself as not necessarily being black or white. Um, and he argues that, you know, he, what, he, what this guy is saying is that, you know, his family is living, <coughs> excuse me, the antithesis of that perspective. And he fears that it may damage his children irrevocably. He highlights uh, that he's white and his wife is black. He says, when we met, we saw each other's race, but we didn't think that was the most interesting thing about us. We foolishly thought our children would be part of a post-racial future in which all Americans could just be human beings to one another. <clears throat> then came Trump. I decided I should try to learn more about my fellow citizens who now, who I now realized were completely opaque to me. In contrast, my wife decided she was at war with an immutably white supremacist America. My wife began to read authors like Nicole Hannah-Jones uh, and Michael Harriet. She had a racial awakening, concluding that she'd been inauthentically black all her life. My wife came to think that her mind, trained in exclusively exclusive private schools and in two Ivy League institutions for a BA and a PhD, had been colonized. She's come to think she owes the, her success to being the right kind of black woman, an inauthentic and white-acting black woman who is non-threatening to white spaces. Most disturbingly, she's interpreted her five decades of life in which she only ever had one very mild story of a microaggression as a history of brutal, grinding racial oppression. Deep beneath her inauthentic white acculturation is an oppressed black woman struggling for freedom. This is what racial grievance entrepreneurs like Nicole Hannah-Jones have done to my wife's mind. What she's doing in turn to the minds of our children, lost it here, the minds of our children makes my blood run cold. My wife is teaching our children that America hates them and wants to kill them because they're black. Rather than take the birth of our children, ambiguous, innocent, raceless little creatures, as an opportunity to rethink the oppressive American race ideology and not hand it down to a new generation, my wife got woke after Trump and doubled down on anti-racist racial essentialism. And he gives a few stories. So he talks about, um, uh, she regularly explains to our kids that the police want to kill black people. Blacks are people police like to kill and always have been. They will keep using the pretext that they got scared when unarmed people reach into their cars like Jacob Blake or steal police tasers like Rayshard Brooks as long as using that pretext allows them to keep killing black people with impunity. That's what she told our children, who by plantation logic are among the black population that the police go out hoping to kill every day. Second story, she told our kids that Kyle Rittenhouse, like so many whites, hates black people and wants to kill black people, so he went to a BLM protest and opened fire. When I asked in a neutral way why she thought Rittenhouse had shot those people, she became upset and stormed out of the house not to return for three hours. The obvious answer is that Rittenhouse is a white supremacist. 
I don't think she even knows that he shot only white people. Any probing beyond this self-evident axiom is too triggering to indulge. Um, and he goes on to say he doesn't have a defense of Rittenhouse. He thought he was a, um, um, let me try to say here. Um, oh, I have no defense of Rittenhouse, a confused, stupid kid whose foolishness and apparent criminal behavior led to his needless killing of two people. Third story, and I'll, I'll end it here. We drove by a protest, a poster that said Ahmad with a pick of Arbery. His daughter said, who's that? His wife said, that's a black man who was killed. My seven-year-old daughter, now trained to think white people hate and want to kill black people like her, went straight to the inference. Oh, so they killed him because they hate black people. My daughter needed no further information to infer that a black man who had been killed was killed because they hate black people. Um, so he goes on, he also goes on to talk about how his wife is trying to inherit the wound, as uh, Thomas Chatterton Will, uh, Williams says. Um, when she should inherit nothing but joy, love, and a sense of her own endless potential and a world that reward her for her beauty and brilliance, not punish her for her hatred of her blackness. Um, so you can try to find more. That, like I said, the, the, the tweet threads disappeared because the profile has, but the, there have been people who have, um, um, you know, posted it elsewhere. Um, so I, I can imagine, uh, I mean, this seems like it would be a really tough position to be in in a marriage where suddenly there's a, there's a vast difference in how the two people see each other, particularly when um, it's a, you know, quote unquote, mixed race couple and um, where race has never been important and now it suddenly is. And I can imagine some of my progressive female black friends saying, oh, that's why you don't marry a white guy. <laughs> but um, but uh, I'd be curious to, uh, to hear what you think, John, and, um, and I mean, is this guy white-splaining or does he have a point? Oh, you're muted. Thank you, sorry. I, uh, I think that he's an unfortunate victim of uh, an overprevalence in race essentialism. Everything um, is easily categorized by the color of your skin in conversations like this, and then that uh, necessarily means that you'll have this sort of existence because of, of that. And, you know, it's, it's easy, I guess, as a, as a white uh, coastal suburbanite to suggest that there are different ways to live regardless of race. But, um, you know, not only does it not jive with reality, it's, it's just a really damaging way to view the world uh, politically and personally uh, and, this is a terrible situation for this family. I feel badly for the kids. Um, it's a very odd dynamic. And I, I so often don't think in racial terms. Um, and that, uh, the correct response to that from somebody who does would say, it's easy for me not to being white. And I think to some degree that's fair. Um, but I, I just don't see a lot of value in couching every single conversation in literal black and white terms. Although not literal black and white, it's more like kind of brown and peach or something. But yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and by the way, uh, it looks like Ari might be jumping in here in a few minutes. So hopefully we can get his perspective. I don't know if he read the, uh, the tweet storm beforehand that I'd sent you guys, but. Um, I, I actually didn't get through all of it because it was like really bumming me out. Oh yeah. <laughs> Yeah, just to think of like the weight of all of this discourse weighing on this family and manifesting in the way that it did, it just, it's got to be so hard. 
Um, and how, how do you bridge that gap? You know, I had told you before we got on, but like my wife is uh, purposefully apolitical. I couldn't imagine being married to someone who possessed like such an authoritarian way of viewing the world. And then also was not the same uh, perspective that I had. That would be really tough. Yeah, for sure. Well, you know, I think part of what I, I think I struggle with this is like, so I get there's different kind of moving parts here, but I think one of them is whether or not this approach is goal oriented. Um, so if if the goal is that we're trying to kind of build what King called the blessed community where race is not significant, I, I really question whether this kind of progressive woke anti-racism approach gets us there. And I think it's, so that's one part, that's one part. The other thing is, you know, people say things like, you know, we should, you know, you need to stop talking about racism and it wouldn't be a problem or whatever. Um, and insofar that racism is still a factor, we should talk about it, right? We should address it and we should try to fix it. Um, but I think where it isn't there and we um, invent it, or maybe it is there a little bit, we exaggerate it. Um, I think we are blocking a path toward peace. So, so if it's, um, if racism is there and we do nothing about it, we're blocking a path to justice. And if it isn't there and we invent it, we're blocking the path to peace because we're focusing our attention on problems which don't really exist and can't be fixed. Um, and so like, you know, if you can imagine a situation where, you know, John, like your wife was constantly bringing up um, uh, her suspicion that you were having an affair or something when you weren't, <laughs> um, you can imagine that over time that would become um, very difficult for you guys to have like a, a, a successful relationship because she's constantly bringing up grievances that, that aren't legitimate, you know? And so I think, when you sort of have an almost religiously motivated perspective where it's like, well, this is just the way it is. Uh, cops are just always out to kill black people. And that's just the kind of world we live in. Like, <coughs> excuse me, if that was the world we lived in, then obviously we'd want to address that. <laughs> and even if there's a tiny bit of truth in that, we should, you know, say what it, say that, say it out loud and, and try to address it. Um, but I think, there, there is a danger in having a perspective that I'm going to see it whether it's there or not. Um, and I, I think about it, I've read some of Robin DiAngelo's book, um, <clears throat> White's Fragility, where she's someone who has led these or co-led these um, uh, racial sensitivity, you know, courses for corporate corporations and stuff like Struggle that. Struggle sessions. Struggle sessions. And she'll, she'll kind of, you know, kind of jump out by saying, you know, kind of inflammatory things to the white people that are there, you know, that, you know, they're, that they are racist, which she eventually, I guess, will sort of define in some kind of a weird roundabout way that says, well, I'm not saying that you as an individual hate black people or whatever, but, um, but, she, but what she, she kept saying, basically she wrote this book because she said every time we would do these sessions, um, there would inevitably be white people who were offended and, <laughs> and, and the, the, their feelings were hurt and they would get defensive. And it's like, well, yeah. <laughs> and, and she saw that as a sign of white privilege, white fragility, and this kind of subversive sort of racism that maybe they didn't even realize that that was in them. And, you know, it's, I, I feel like people talk about gaslighting a lot nowadays. Like, I feel like that's a very severe form of gaslighting, you know, that I'm going right. to come against you and I'm going to claim something about you that I don't know. And then when you try to defend yourself, I'm going to say, 
well, that's just evidence that you're racist. And, um, and not, just, not just any charge, but perhaps the most toxic and culturally significant charge that you could make today in 2020 U.S., right? Sure, yeah, to be called a racist is, I mean, I mean nobody wants to be called a racist. That's terrible. Um, and, uh, oh, sorry, I'm going to send a uh, link to Ari here. But yeah, so I, I guess there, there, so there's, there's different elements here. So, I mean, first of all, is it making up things that aren't there? And, and if that's the case, then that too gets in the way of uh, building bridges, right? So, and I think in particular, when you are suspicious of the people who, you know, should be your allies, <laughs> um, that, that's going to create all kinds of problems. And I think that's part of the thing where, um, we start to push people away uh, and into another, you know, I think there are a lot of, you know, kind of white moderates who never really thought about race before who are being told they should feel guilty. And they're either going to sort of kind of go around with their head hung down, feeling guilty about it and talking about how they just feel like terrible people. Um, or they're going to say, you know, I, I'm tired of feeling guilty for things I can't control. And they're going to go to the white extremist side. And I think, you know, I, I think that that's definitely a valid concern. I, I think as, insofar as we're seeing that grow, I think that's at least part of why. Yeah. And I think, you know, most people aren't trying to adjudicate these claims like by drilling down into the data. So when you make a, an assertion that like, I mean, Michelle Obama at the DNC was talking about, I want to, I want to read her quote exactly because it is amazing. She said, uh, She said, here at home, as George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and the never-ending list of innocent people of color continue to be murdered, stating the simple fact that a black life matter, matters is still met with derision from the nation's highest office. Uh, when we have somebody who is so publicly influential and carries so much heft with the things that she says, um, a never-ending list of innocent people of color continuing to be murdered because, um, because they, the supporters of theirs will, would have the nerve to, to assert that a black life matters, um, puts them at odds with the presidency. I mean, every bit of that is a rhetorical trick and um, is not like something that you could substantiate. And, you know, you, you hear so often about like a genocide of, of black Americans black unarmed men, particularly uh, by police. And the numbers just don't bear that out. And it's not to say that it isn't a problem and you won't find a, a more critical person of police than me. Uh, but I also, I just, I can't not acknowledge the fact that there's a lot of inflammatory language being used that just takes away from the actual goal of making any change. And it also makes cops, I mean, I, I work around police uh, a fair bit between when I was on the ambulance and now in the ER. I interface with them uh, quite a bit. And, you know, there's this sentiment that comes up a lot about like victimhood. And when you hear someone like Michelle Obama make a speech like that and frame extremely complex killings oftentimes as a never-ending list of innocent people being murdered, you can kind of wrap your head around why it is they think that way. And 
lot of these shootings are not are not um, appropriate, uh, and and I will very oftentimes be more critical than the average bear about police use of force. But I mean, come on, it, it, it's just an it's an objectively wrong way to frame the facts on the ground, and it, it's only with the hopes of like being inflammatory, rallying your base, speaking against the opponent and um it's it's disturbing to see how often language is used this way yeah it looks like Ari's trying to jump in he's got he's got a nice mic there man what's up Ari? can you hear me i guess not <laughs> oh, okay gotcha okay just making sure <laughs> what's up man i'm good how are you doing all right um, so, I, I don't know if it's um, coming from just my computer or is it coming from my mic? I have no idea. So that's probably, that probably was like the big thing okay. I'm trying to get, you know, worked gotcha. out. Well, we got you now, man. All righty. So, so Ari, we got Ari with us finally. You doing okay, man? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. It was, it's been a, a busy day, I guess, a busy morning. Well, you and I both have a, a, a kid coming soon, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, we assume that it had something to do with that. Is everything cool? Yeah, she's she's good. Um, she's she's been, you know, I don't want to get too much into it, but she's been having, you know, contractions every every now and then, and like I guess they just kind of they were really strong this morning. Yeah. So we just wanted to be, you know, we wanted to be, yeah. be safe, and so we rushed it to the we rushed it to the yeah. hospital, and we like, is it happening? Then it was false alarm. So gotcha. But you, but you're far enough along that you're not too concerned if if she starts having contractions at this point. Yeah, she's she. She's literally supposed to have the baby this month, at the end of this month. So it's like it's about two weeks away. So. Dude, that's awesome. Well, we're, we're glad you jumped in and glad everything's all right. Um, so Ari, um, we were just talking about the uh, the tweet storm um, uh, from, was it Publicola17 on Twitter? Did you have any thoughts about that? I mean, is he, uh, uh, is he white-splaining or does he have a point? <laughs> you, you know, it's, it's weird because, you know, because I'm, I'm in, a, uh, in an interracial relationship too. So. Um, I do know that at one point I was quote unquote woke. You know, I wasn't always where I am now. You know, specifically coming out of coming out of high school and going into college, um, a lot of a lot of what I a lot of what I knew was grounded in other people's experiences. Because if I were to have to understand society through my own experiences, I would say that racism is extremely um, a small part in a small aspect of my life. I don't feel as if um, socioeconomically I've been held down by white people and I've never been arrested. I have a clean record. Um, I've never been accosted by, accosted by a cop before. So if I had to understand it through my own experiences, I would be like, well, I really don't see any systemic or institutionalized racism in my own life and even in terms of the people that are surrounding me the black people that are surrounding me even in my even like with my parents who hold like you know there's i mean obviously i'm not saying that there's no racism and there's no racial tyranny in society obviously there is but in terms of it like really being a big a big aspect of my life i would i would say no and so even in terms of my wife i remember when we had, we were just getting together, my wife doesn't, is not a very political person. She's very apolitical. I, I would say, like, we, we talk about, you know, we talk about libertarianism, and, and she's an anarchist, basically, but 
she doesn't get involved in the politics. And so like if you if you're friends with my wife, she's extremely apolitical. She just doesn't care about politics. And but at one point when I was on that when I was on that side, my it was it would kind of cause a little bit of tension in terms of me and my wife's relationship because it's like I'm telling you that I'm being uh, racially and systemically oppressed by this by this tyrannical thing out there and she's kind of like well I, I don't really see it and so it's kind of hard for me to it's kind of hard for me to sympathize with it but she's trying to you know she she tries to but she like you, I can't I couldn't force her to believe something that she didn't believe was true and so I can kind of see that it would be causing a little bit of you know a little bit of uh, a little disjoint disjointed and disjointedness even in the way that they parent and in the in within the relationship itself because i can i have firsthand experience that that's what was happening to me and my wife and so for me like now where i am with me and my wife we're just like look i'm not i'm not so sure that racism has played such a big part in who i am today i i believe that the vast majority of the vast majority of the things and of the reasons why I am where I am now it has it has a lot more to do with my with my actions with the choices that I have with the choices that I've I've chosen to uh, take with the path that I've chosen to take the reason why I am where I am now the reason why we have a house the reason why we have two cars the reason why we have a little bit of money in the bank the reason why we have a we have a child and we're not we didn't do it out of wedlock is due to the choices that we make and so I can kind of see where where this guy is coming from it's like this woke narrative it does have a tendency to like put a wedge yeah. in people's relationships and i can see that now because like it's put a wedge in relationships where i am now and i'm black you know b between between a cousin of mine and this friend of mine it does have a tendency to put a wedge between relationships and it makes it it makes it difficult to navigate through like through relationships if you are going through this and, and, and honestly it makes sense I mean, you know if i were if i were like someone in the 50s where where my grandmother um she you know she grew up in um she grew up in uh and you know in when the during the times of jim crow and things like that in the 60s and my grandmother would have deemed it extremely difficult for her to be a friend with someone or to be friends or to be an acquaintance with someone who looks at her who looks at her predicament which is absolutely the case my, my mother was being systemically oppressed by the government by a racist government at that time so to have somebody tell you that well you're not really being systemically or racially oppressed and at that time my grandmother have has told me straight up i i would find it extremely problematic to uh remain friends with that person because you're you're not not even necessarily belittling but you're sort of like you know uh jettison je i guess you're there they have a tendency to jettison um, react to jettison the reality of what my grandmother was experiencing so when you have a person who believes that they are being racially and systemically oppressed today but then you have people who are on the quote-unquote right who are saying well i don't necessarily actually see it that way like i think that that's, that's, going to, that's going to inevitably necessarily cause. Oh, I mean, I, I don't want to interrupt you, but I, I'm, every so often I'm hearing a little bit of feedback or something on the mic suddenly. 
I'm not sure why, but every side will be like, it'll just kind of sound like almost like something's hitting your shirt or something. I don't know how to explain it, but it's like. Okay. Well, I was, I was done anyway. So. Okay. That's okay. Yeah. Sorry. But but yeah. um, Well, I guess what I was curious about, um, like, you know, when, when, when your wife would not really like see what you were talking about, like, did it, like, did it like offend you or like, how did you feel about it when she would sort of say, I don't know. I don't see it. Yeah. I mean, because. Do you, do you hear feedback now a little bit? Not right now. And it wasn't consistent. It was every so often it would just kind of come in little waves for some reason. Oh, okay. yeah. So, I mean, it, it would bother me a little bit, but I, like, I guess where, I guess where I was, I wasn't so far off to that far off on that spectrum to the point where I thought it was like, it's almost like that's, that's a no go to not agree with me in a sense you know so for me it was just like oh okay i guess not you know because like for me me and my wife like even when i even when i was on that i I never really thought that where i was in my life had 100 percent or even even 40 or even 50 or 30 percent to do with someone being being racist to me and so for me it's just like it, it it was enough the percentage the, the percentage of how of what i thought could be blamed on racism in my life i just think that it didn't it didn't surpass the threshold of it being tolerable for somebody to disagree with me i guess well and you know what what something i've thought about um i was listening to a, a, a i think it was a fifth column podcast where camille foster was talking about how um he'd sort of said like you know he wondered if there were instances of racism in his life that he didn't notice because he just wasn't inclined to see it. Like he just wasn't inclined to assume that that was what it was anytime he had like a weird interaction or something. Um, And it it did make me think about the role that narrative plays Um, that, you know, whether or not racism is a major factor in the United States at this point, um, if you assume that it is, you would probably see it. Right. And, and, And if you assume that it isn't, you probably wouldn't see it very much. Like, unless it was like super obvious. Yeah. You know, there's been so many times where, like I would say, um, like I, I, I don't, I really, I really hate when people put black people, all black people in, in one category, you know, like LeBron James has said like, yo, us black people, you know, we're afraid to go outside. I was like, well, maybe some are, but not all of them are. Like, I'm not one of those people who, who's afraid to step outside because of a white, du- a racist white dude is going to like put a bullet in my head. Like, I, I don't fear that. And so for me, it's always been a, it's always, it's always been like a, um, like, so there was this girl, she was like, well, I I commented on that. And she said, well, maybe you just don't see it. It's like, well, maybe, but it's like, you're, you're, you're asking me, you're asking me to believe in a ghost. I don't, I don't, I don't see anything. I don't see what you see. And I think it's kind of disingenuous. And I'm trying to be a person where I'm, I'm a lot more empathetic and sympathetic to people two people's experiences and two people's point of view because I don't want to just be that person who you know who's like a facts over facts over feelings it's like well feelings feelings don't necessarily have to con, con you know conflict with facts necessarily like maybe your feelings are actually um indicative and you know in, indicative of a fact that's an actual reality so for me it's just like I'm trying I'm trying my best to stay objective because if I'm going to if I'm going to judge something off of my own experiences it's like well yes i'm not specifically with the narrative thing it's like 
I don't even understand for me, I don't even understand how the narrative is is even inculcated into my it's even inculcated into my thinking. So for me it's just like, yeah, I've seen racism, I've experienced racism, but to then say that my experiences in racism is just a microcosm of an overall of an overarching thing happening in society, I just think that's a that's a stretch for me. And but so it's like for me, no, I, I'm I'm not going to I refuse to um judge things based off of what could have or maybe you didn't see it. It's like well if I didn't see it then that's probably perhaps it is because I just wasn't I just wasn't I don't have the disposition to see it. But if I didn't see it, maybe that's evidence that is not actually there, you know? Mm -hmm. Well yeah, it could be. I guess that's kind of it's like an individual experience is not, you know, invalid. I mean, so I guess it's like always possible that someone can have an individual experience that they've misread, right? But like, I think I'd be willing to grant, like, you know, somebody, unless, at the very least, I wouldn't want to be too pushy because I know, like, sometimes when you tell somebody, like, I think you misunderstood what happened here, they get defensive, right? And I'm, I don't want to make somebody feel defensive, but, um, like, I, I think I'm willing to take for granted um, that when somebody tells me, oh, I had this experience of racism even if it seems like maybe a little questionable like i'd be willing to say okay yeah maybe maybe that's what that was right and, and you know the thing is i i like when someone tells me that they experience racism I, yeah. i'm not because i i've experienced it like i'm i'm so i'm i'm surrounded sure. in in some in some way shape i work at a i work at a warehouse and about 70 percent of my of of you know of the people that i work with are white and i've experienced even even blacks too but mostly white specifically i've experienced racism so it's like i'm not going to i think i think that's the like that's the i think that's the that's the uh, i i how you say it that's the um the i don't know how to say it i guess that's that's the thing that i'm not willing to call into question sure yeah you you experiencing yeah. racism it's like, it's like that's perfectly that's perfectly reasonable for me to assume that that an instance of racism that you claim to have experienced yeah. i'm not going to say well how do i know that it's actually, that that actually works sure. but, but 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 that experience of racism may not mean as as um as one um um uh Black, black liberal representative had said that it's open season on black people. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like yeah, you, so you can't really extrapolate that to that level. Yeah. Then that's what, that's what, what, that's what I tend to see, you know, with specifically because it's like, I, I, I am in a, an entirely black family and you know, I have, I have Mexicans and, and, and some whites in my family, but the majority of my family are black. And when we talk about racism, when we talk about these narratives, they tend to extrapolate from these individual and the individual instances of racism and they extrapolate those individual instances instances of racism as if that is a that is as, as if that is a representation of what's going on in America as a whole and it's like I've only been alive for in 20 in, I'll be I'll be alive for 26 years and next month how could I ever believe that my particular uh, experiences in some way, shape or form is indicative of the overall society? I'm one person and there's like 300, 300 million people in this country. How could my experiences be indicative of what's going on in America as a whole?
Well, and I think part of it is is that it's a it's a convenient and easy sort of way to to frame things, um, and it doesn't even have to be like malicious necessarily, as it is like they're complex issues and that's a thread that we've come to understand fairly well. And so it's like, yeah, that, that's an explanation that people can wrap their heads around. And I also think there's a bit of asymmetry in, in racism in that like, if you are a person of color who's experienced it, it's easy to extrapolate to, to the larger society by saying, well, if this one person was brazen enough to be a racist to me, then clearly there's a lot of closet racists out there. Um, but I, I think that the rhetorical the rhetorical position that so many people take is the one that is really worth speaking to because the the quote uh, about open season or the the idea of like genocide by police and stuff like that these are really inflammatory uses of the facts on the ground to I mean just frankly misrepresent what it is that's happening and it's not to it's not to downplay. Um, the the killing of of black americans by police you know that's that's an a thing that we can all as libertarians or anarchists say objectively is wrong and something we want to change but uh you know before you popped on me and cody were talking about how like there doesn't seem to be a real um desire to change policy so much as there is to like foment foment problems um and that's one of the areas that i i have a huge problem with it's if it weren't the fact that brianna taylor um was was killed in um terrible circumstances but just because she was black i i think um you know the rand paul situation like we talked about earlier um sorry i got the dude here with me um you know it's it's not it's not so one-dimensional as to just say that uh brianna taylor died because she was black if anything it's easy to argue that her race had really nothing to do with it more so it's it's that it becomes a, a convenient sort of data point for um, people who are trying to to push one given narrative about race and, and race essentialism. Yeah, well, and I, I think, you know, the kind of what Ari was getting at, um, there, there's a role here for like statistics and, and objective data. And I think when you look at that, you can find areas where there are discrepancies. And in some of those cases, I think discrepancies might be race-based. So like, um, I was telling John earlier about an interesting study that a friend of mine had pointed me to. Um, they, they talk, I've, I've heard people talk about, um, you know, even though um, infant mortality and, and, you know, women dying in childbirth is pretty rare in America, um, it happens a little bit. And it was pointed out that it happened more with black mothers than with white mothers. Um, and that on its own might not tell you very much because there, there could be different circumstances that are like these other factors as well beyond just, okay, well, you know, skin color. But then another study came out that showed that when a black doctor was involved in, in childbirth, it was um, the, the rates of um, the rates between black and white women were basically the same. But when it was a white doctor, um, you, were, you were, you know, black women were more likely to have issues in childbirth. And that suggested that there is some kind of a bias there that should be addressed, right? Um, there have also been studies that have talked about racial profiling being like a, a real thing that happens. Now, talking about the question about, well, obviously it would be a huge exaggeration to say that police are out there trying to kill black people every day, but even to say, is there a racial motivation um, involved in um, this statistic that if you're black, you're a little bit more likely, well, 
what's like it was the last year's data point was like was it like 19 unarmed white people and nine sorry yeah nine unarmed black people shot by police so you made you were more likely to be killed if you were black uh when you look at your uh, black people as a percentage of the population right mm -hmm. but that be, now does that mean that race is the primary factor involved there and i think that's harder to prove because there are other data points that could be brought in um that kind of you know could limit that reading you know and so i think we can we can have these conversations and say like you know yeah that that happened to you and i'm sorry and that sounds like that was racism you know but that doesn't necessarily mean that as a country we're in a position where it's open season on black people um, and I think that's kind of the narrative that we're being presented with, is that these individual examples of racism that most Black people have can, can point to in their lives uh, suggests that um, it's just very dangerous to live in this country as, as a Black person. Um, well, particularly dangerous in the sense of, like, police and, you know, white racists coming after you. But anyway... Well, um, that's like a big, a big issue between like bias training and some of, some of the conversation that we're having, right? Like the, the um, maternal, uh, maternal mortality rate amongst black women, the study that you're referencing, uh, there's, a, there's a real point to be made there about bias and like how um, distress expressed by a black woman is perceived relative to ex distress expressed by a white woman or a woman who's Hispanic or whatever. Yeah. Um, there's like something tangibly there and I'm, I work in healthcare. I can speak to that. Um, well, well John, 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 I was going to mention real quick. One of the, I was shocked to hear this. And my friend pointed this out and I started researching it. There is a, um, a, a, a stereotype, even in like, in med, in like the people who are like medically trained in medical schools, uh, will talk about that. Um, um, supposedly black people um have a higher threshold for pain <laughs> and i couldn't believe that that was something that people nowadays believed and said i don't know if that's ever something you've heard i haven't but i i used to work in a primarily um hispanic community mm -hmm. and um there was like tropes about the way that hispanic women would present with pain relative to anyone else and then there's like a running joke about the man flu where like men over 30 tend to complain about issues and exaggerate the way that they um, feel relative to like a woman experiencing the same thing. So a guy may come in with a kidney stone and he looks like he's absolutely losing his mind and he's dying right away. And a, and a woman who's 80 may come in and like complain of a little tenderness, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think that there's a lot of uh, individuality to, to to overlay on the conversation, but bias is a thing that I think deserves a lot more conversation. It's just hard to get there when the conversation is about whether or not there's an actual genocide going on. Um, and, and I think that that muddying of the waters is purposeful. Again, I, I can't hammer this point enough. I don't think it's accidental that people from Michelle Obama to various senators to the columnists that we read are all using the colorful rhetoric that they do. I think it's because it's not about changing policy. It's about, it's about division. Yeah. Well, um, I was going to move on to election politics uh, real quick to kind of finish this up, unless Ari has anything he wants to add before we move. Uh, no, no, I'm good. Okay, cool. So, okay, so um, I don't think any of us here are going to vote for Biden or Trump. Um, but <laughs> Actually, I'm not. I'm not even sure who here is voting. Um, 
but um, if if you felt obligated to vote for one or the other, um, there was some scenario, some hypothetical scenario where you had to. Uh, is which one would you support and why? It has to be. It has to be between Biden and and Trump. Well, I guess what I'm curious about, as in the, in the kind of the, the sort of time we're in, where there's there's all this kind of amping up of violence and stuff like that. Um, I've been thinking in a lot in terms of like, you know, I'm not going to vote for either, but um, would I rather, on some level, knowing that it's it's almost certainly going to be one of those two. Um, who am I going to be most bummed about if they win? <laughs> maybe that's another way to say it. And I guess part of me feels like maybe Biden is a better option for the country just because he's such a, um, he's not somebody that it, it inspires really any kind of emotion from anybody. Um, whereas I think Trump is somebody who kind of stoke, puts a lot of, you know, stokes the fires a lot. And so maybe on some level, it's just people can't, can't really keep repeating the same rhetoric with somebody like Biden in charge. And so I, I so, so part of me was wondering if maybe in, in that sense, Biden's a better option, even if it's kind of a return to the same sort of terrible industrial complex, foreign policy and stuff like that. Yeah. I, you, know, you know, if I'm, if I'm being honest, I think I would, if I, if I was like, if I had a gun to my head and I had to either click Trump or Biden, I'd probably, I'd probably click Biden over Trump because like in in all honesty, I I don't really see that much. I don't really like policy wise. I don't really see that much difference to them. You know, obviously they have they 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 differentiate themselves in terms of what they prescribe the government to do. But the majority of the time, like funding funding wise for the government, they tend to be they tend to be kind of both big government big government type dudes. So it's like. Who do I, who would I find more, more stomachable, I guess? I guess I would find Joe Biden more stomachable because I, I, I didn't dislike, like, I, I sincerely dislike Trump as a person, just sincerely, sincerely as a person. But in terms of Joe Biden, while he was in office for those eight years, I never really, like, I never really saw a problem with him in my opinion. So I, just for me, I would have to like all of my when all of the political stuff when all of like the, the libertarian principles are thrown out of the window and you tell me choose either Trump or Biden I'd probably choose Biden over the very fact that I just like I really don't like Trump. John, you gonna go blue? You gonna turn on that anti-war war vet for a MAGA hat? Um, so I agree with Ari. In insofar as like Biden is a better vanilla candidate to know what it is that we're getting he's certainly more palatable his policies are probably a little bit more towards the center which is probably where we should be going if we had to choose between the two of them i think that he represents the establishment in ways that make him terrifying because of how obscure and polite and polished the uh, terrible policies of the obama administration or like the clinton family um, and like their administration would go. And I think that ultimately most of like the bureaucracy, the unelectable officials that make up most of government, I think that they like Biden or favor like left centrist policy. 
all of which means that like Biden would probably be a more effective candidate in actually instituting policy he wants, which is why if I had to choose, and I, I think about this almost every day, and my opinion sort of changes with whenever I look at anything Trump says, I, I, I fall away from imagining it. But if I had to choose, I think at the end of the day, I would choose Trump. And the reason why is it's a singular reason. He evokes a skepticism of the office that I think is appropriate for everyone to think about the president, regardless of who it is. And when Trump is in office, the caricature of that man and how objectively ridiculous he is and bad at, at you know, being a politician and, and being just a, a figurehead and a leader, he, he helps people to understand both how ridiculous it is that we have this one office that represents all the things that it's supposed to represent. And he evokes like a visceral disdain from the legislative branch that makes him less effective. And so I think another four years of Trump would mean a lot more scandal and media outrages and, um, you know, screeching, but I don't think it would mean a lot of like policy change. The thing that I try to make the point to people about here, like, in my circle is Trump is, is like, if you were to just remove all of his, his like superficial, superficial nature, and you were to just take his policies, like what's happened in government in the last four years, it would be, it would be impossible to differentiate him from like a, a Bush, a W Bush, or really an Obama in a lot of ways. Um, Maybe on foreign policy where I think he actually is probably better. Yeah. Or at least like, he has taken the Obama administration approach on North Korea and done that across the entire globe. He wants to run in place and pass the ball. He doesn't want to make any waves. He, he has an inclination of pulling troops out of areas that seem like they're losing um, deals for us, which is all well and good. And I, I think the, the position he has on NATO and pulling us out of NATO or, um, you know, speaking to its its nature as like a sort of a failed coalition is all really important. And those are some of the like the true benefits that I think we got from him that we would have gotten, we would have never gotten from a conventional candidate. But that I don't, I don't support him for his policies or his rhetoric so much as I do the visceral response he gets from the constituency and from the media and from the political class. Everyone hates him. Everyone's against him. And that means he'll be less effective. And I want to, I want the least effective politician in every office. You just persuaded yeah, I, I think, me to vote for Trump then. All right. Yeah. <laughs> I agree with that. I agree with that more. I, I've never, I've never really thought of, thought of it like that. So yeah, that's cool. That's good. Well, you know, I, I was inclined at one point to agree with your point about, um, you know, sort of Trump basically taking this sort of veneer of respectability away from the office and sort of laying bare what it really is. Um, but I, so I, I like to think that people just go, wow, this is what the office of the president is. I hate this. <laughs> but I think instead of people have just said, this guy is really bad. we got to put somebody else in there. <laughs> and, right. and so I, I wish that that was how people reacted to it, but I'm not sure if that is really how they're reacting to it. I think in a lot of ways, you know, Trump is like this kind of mirror of our hearts in a way. Like he brings out the wickedness in all of us. Like I think everybody, regardless of their political perspective, is worse because of Trump. Um, yeah, it, it, like just sorry, I didn't, I didn't mean to. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. But th this is the problem that I see with poli with politics now. I, I think what's happening is that 
Trump has pretty much made Republicans, made conservatives, made Democrats, made liberals. He's shown in many ways that they that they will toss principles out of, out of the out of the you know out of the window when it comes to him. So you'll see. I've seen I've seen so many people who were principled liberals talking, you know, doing saying this, saying that, saying this, saying that. I won't move from this. But then I've also seen Republicans saying this, saying that, saying this, saying that, who's like, you know, who conservatism. But then and they realize that Trump is not a conservative. You know, Trump is not what a Ben Shapiro would be in terms of conservatism. Trump is not what a Stephen Crowder would be in terms of conservatism, but Trump has literally made it to the point that we are just voting for a person. We are not voting for principle anymore. We're voting for a person now. And so it's almost like he's made people forsake principle in terms of lesser, lesser, choosing the lesser evil of the two. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I think on a, on a personal level, he's just a bad person. Like, and, and you know, I think like, you know, it's it's hard to say. There's this kind of weird thing that we do, sort of, where we look at somebody like maybe Obama and say, like, oh, he seems like a nice guy and he seems respectable or whatever, and we sort of leave to the side the fact that his policies are terrible and that they result in a lot of people dying. <laughs> and, and I think you know, so on one level, like you know, it makes it almost hard to say like, you know, these people are bad people. Um, because, you know, on a personal level, they seem like they're nice, but they've just kind of rationalized the job. And I think, but I think at, at, at core, Trump is like a bad person. And, you know, I think... Yeah, can I push back on that, though? Go ahead. You're 100% right that Trump's a bad person. And you're yeah. 100% right that Obama has the veneer of respectability that he doesn't. But, like, when we talk about genocide, the closest thing that we can imagine in the modern world is what's happening in Yemen. And it's all the Obama administration's fault. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. And that, that was what I was saying too. Is that when you look at the policies, there's this rationalization that's been done where somebody like a Bush or an Obama might be, you know, a very nice person, and in, in you know when you deal with them face to face, but the policies they've supported have resulted in so many deaths. And so, like, you can't say that they're good in that sense, but like we've kind of rationalized violence in, in you know, politically. You know, if as long as it's done in an official capacity, it's okay. And I guess that's kind of what I'm getting at. Um, but I don't know if you had to, if you wanted to finish anything up on that, I'm sorry. Well, I was just going to say, like, I think, I think there's, there's like a real, a real potency to, um, the apparent goodness of the candidate Mm. that, that makes us forgive everything else that like confuses people about, um, what it is that we're talking about when we're talking about presidential politics or foreign policy, or, I mean, even domestic policy, he, he was terrible on immigration. He, he didn't evoke any of the same responses that came from Trump for literally the same policies about imprisoning Mexican kids on the border. Sure. Um, and I, to me, to me, that's terrifying. Like if we can have a candidate that we all kind of agree is an absolute clown and um, represents something that we should be averse to, like at our base level, then we're going to be hypercritical of all of his policies. Whereas Obama, I, I still have like a hard time convincing people like in the postmortem that he was an objective bad um, mm -hmm. for all of these like really concrete reasons. 
Yeah. Um, well, I, yeah. I guess maybe the distinction I'm making is um, at least he seemed that it seemed that he meant well. And I know that when when you're when I when you go into the voting booth, you're, you're not going to you're interested in the actual effects of the president and not just their intentions. But I think there's something about Trump where he's less concerned about the country and he's more concerned about himself. And I don't think that you got that as much from like the pre some of the previous presidents, right? Like he's singularly focused on himself. Yeah, I, I think that's true. But then like whether or not, I, you, you could certainly argue whether or not Obama and his administration were cynical actors or like well-intentioned, but um, we still have the tangible results and we still have the, um, the apologetics for him and his policies and the wake of, of dead, dead Middle Eastern yeah. uh, and North Africans that I, we, we just don't have to do for Trump. You know, we're, we're very quick to uh, disparage any, any bad outcome for him. And I, I, I'm not, I don't, I don't really know. I don't really know if I would rather have a well-intentioned moral monster yeah. or um and a purposeful one yeah no I, I know what you mean which is which is i think why i don't think any of us are voting for either of them but i was curious to sort of <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. If, if there was an outcome that we at least were going to we, we'd be more comfortable with well so um, uh to that point though now that i'm thinking about it biden is kind of less of that right like he he really is he doesn't have like this the same cinderella story that obama had he's been in office for 30 some odd years almost 40 years now right like, he really is like a, a, a playmaker, cynical, at least it's much easier to wrap your head around that being the case, which I think even hurts his, his, um, his veneer more, you know? Yeah. So now, who, who do we think is going to win? Biden. Biden? Yeah, I, think I, so. I think it's like an unquestionable at this point. I thought so about a month ago. <laughs> Actually, maybe a little bit more than that. When, when it was just COVID, I thought, and the economy was in the crapper, I thought, okay, this is really going to hurt Trump. Um, but I, I, I don't know because, I, you know, I think the riots and stuff, well, I, I, it depends on how you look at the riots. You can look at these riots that are going on and say, this is the result of Trump's rhetoric and the fact that we all hate each other because Trump is dividing us. Or you can say, these guys are closer to Biden than they are to Trump, and so therefore I vote for Trump. <laughs> Um, but I think, you know, for Trump to say that he's the solution to the riots when he's president right now and we have the riots is a pretty, is a pretty hard sell for anybody who's very intelligent, but most people who vote are not very intelligent, I don't think. So, <laughs> unfortunately. Okay, so, so yeah, I don't know. I, I think, I think it's, it's, there's a chance it's Trump, but I, I think it's probably Biden. Yeah. Anyway. I think the upstart, like surprise victory of Trump the first time was an anomaly. Yeah. Well, it was, it was kind of an artifact of um, the kind of um, of electoral politics, right? Where really, if you went on popular vote, it would have went the other way. But, you know, he's still, even on popular vote, he had a chance. Um, it just didn't work out. But, all right. Cool. So now, I think well, we I have, I, have a, I have a question. So yeah. if, if, do you think it would have went differently in 2000, in 2016 if it weren't Hillary and mm. it was Joe Biden. Would it have gone the other way? I think Hillary was singularly, not singularly, but she was very unpopular. Yeah. And I think Biden is somebody who people don't have a strong opinion about either way. Um, but 
on the other hand, Trump has had four years to persuade some people, right? There are people who've looked at the economy and looked at other factors and they are happy about it. And maybe some people who are just kind of bad actors who like to see liberals squirm and they want to see more of that. Um, <laughs> and so I think there are some people who he's probably legitimately won over. But I do think that it is, it is definitely um, connected to the other choice that was there and how unpopular she was. And also the fact that a week before the election, they reopened the FBI investigation on her emails. And so people are going into the voting booth thinking, maybe this person's a criminal, right? Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think it really, but you might be right. It might have been a fluke of the last election, um, but I don't well, know. There's a, there's a big, like, I forget who it was, but there's a, there's a reporter that was talking about, like, the visceral nature of voting for Trump. That it's like this gut reaction, emotional choice right at the poll that you walk in imagining yourself voting for Joe or for yeah. Joe and then find yourself voting for Trump because of, you know, opposition politics. And maybe there's something to that, but I just don't think the amount of people, you know, it's going to be a matter of whether or not Biden can motivate a base or get people sure. out to vote. Sure. Or, or if there are Antifa people outside the voting booth hurling feces, that might, somebody might change their mind at the last second there. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> All right. Anybody closing uh, closing thoughts? I'm glad you were able to join us, Aria. Sorry, uh, we missed you there early on, but yeah, yeah. Glad we got you. I apologize, guys. Hey, Dave, dude, you got to take care of your family. Yeah. <laughs> my podcast might be more important than my family, but it shouldn't be more important than your. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, but, um, I, I think. Man, well, you know, I, I was here for the very ending of it, but. Um, I, I would really like, I really thank you for uh, even considering me for doing these type of things because I don't, I don't find myself to be in terms of just going off the dome, mm -hmm. being a particularly um, uh, smart person, I guess. So it's just me. Most of the time, it's just me rambling. No, but, no. I appreciate what you bring to the table. Actually, I was just, I uh, had lunch with a friend yesterday who's been um, listening to my podcast and he talked about how much he really enjoyed these where we're kind of all in these together. Mm -hmm. And so I want to do more of this. So this is good. I, I like, I kind of, um, I'll tell my wife, like, oh, I got to do a podcast with the anarchists. So <laughs> I think it's a lot of fun. All right. Well, thank you guys so much. And uh, uh, hope, maybe, well, I don't know. Maybe the next time we talk, you'll be a dad, Ari. Uh, I don't know. Hopefully. hopefully. Yeah. Well, I guess yeah, you are right. I'll talk to you before then. Good luck, man. It's going to be yes, great. Sir. Thank you. Appreciate it. All, All right. right. Good talking to you guys. Yes, hey, <laughs>